You're listening to the EFCA Theology Podcast, which exists to help pastors and church leaders stay passionate about the gospel and faithful to the scriptures. In 2017, EFCA pastors and church leaders gathered in Austin, Texas for EFCA One, our biennial national conference. The focus of the conference was on EFCA's foundation stones, which are the essential values that have guided our movement from the very beginning. On this episode of the podcast, we share a message from that conference by D.A. Carson. Dr. Carson serves as research professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. It is a great privilege for me to join you at this national conference of the Free Church. I'm a member of a local free church near the seminary in Libertyville, Illinois, and it is a pleasure to be part of this throng. Now, my topic today really runs in two parallel directions, so I've got about three hours of material to present to you, uh, but I, I will try to compact it down a wee bit. For a long time, informed evangelicals have understood the importance of adhering to two principles, the formal principle and the material principle. And I want to talk about both. The formal principle is the principle of authority. That is, on what do we base our beliefs and practices? The formal principle is, for us, the Holy Scripture. That's the formal principle. The material principle is the gospel. That is, it is the content that actually saves us and redeems us. It is what we announce, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you have the formal principle only, you don't have enough. After all, there are others, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, who believe in the same formal principle. They believe the Bible is the authoritative, inspired, inerrant word of God. But they don't have the same material principle. Not at all. In other words, their understanding of the formal principle is such that you end up with a material principle that is substantively different. On the other hand... The material principle is not enough because experience has shown that when you have a body of content, the material principle in this case, the gospel, and you have nothing by which to check it, with time you drift and change it and modify it and domesticate it. It needs to be checked all the time by the authoritative formal principle. So evangelicals have rightly espoused two fundamental principles as governing their direction and priorities, the formal principle and the material principle. Now, just as a little exercise in history before I press on, this year, 2017, we've been celebrating the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's nailing of the 95 theses to the chapel door of the Wittenberg Castle in 1517. That has probably been told you so many times you can see it in your nightmares. It's been referred to so often this year. But it might be useful if we remind ourselves how these two fundamental principles, the formal principle and the material principle, reflect the Reformation solas, the five solas of the Reformation. So sola scriptura, scripture alone, is clearly tied to the formal principle. Then the next three, solus Christus, Christ alone, we are saved by Christ alone. He is the sole Savior. Out of free grace, sola gratia, grace alone, 
received and accessed by faith alone, sola fide, these things constitute the material principle. Do you see? And then soli deo, gloria, to God alone be glory, is the foundational priority that governs and constrains the whole. So in this brief address, I'll walk through, the two, through two passages, two of many that could be chosen, in a rather summary fashion, the one grounding the formal principle and the other grounding the material principle. I'll be going fast enough that I hope you have your Bible with you, whether digital or um, hard copy, it makes no difference. But we're going to begin with 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 to 17. 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 to 17. Now, I'll set this in its context in a few moments. Let me begin, however, by reading this text. But as for you, Paul writes to Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, it will help us to probe this passage aright if we remind ourselves of the flow of the argument in chapters 3 and 4, this is where it will help to keep your nose in the text. First, in chapter 3, verses 1 to 9, what we find is the world's eschatological curse, the curse of the last days, the sin of the last days. Mark this, 3-1, there will be terrible times in the last Days, But here, as not uncommonly in the New Testament, the last days actually refer to the entire period between Christ's first coming and his second coming. That's not true everywhere in the New Testament, but it's certainly true here. As John, for example, writing to his readers in 2 John can say, My dear children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so also already there are many Antichrists by which we know it is the last hour. So you can have it sometimes the last hour or the last days. It's this entire period where Christ, Christ and his reign are being contested at every front, even by demonic powers. Then you read through this passage, chapter 3, verses 1 to 9. It's astonishingly bleak. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful. Doesn't that characterize our age? Ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. It, it, It does not sound entirely alien. It's a lot easier to see this as a description of contemporary America than it was 50 years ago. But boy, oh boy, do we see it now. And in fact, in principle, it's true in every age. The eschatological curse. And then over against that, the Christian's response is found in 310 and following. It's found in four steps. 
An outline I've used before, forgive me if you've heard it before. Number one, hold the right mentors in high regard, verses 10 and 11. That is, instead of following the people of the previous verses who are so wicked and so opposed to the living God on every front, as opposed to that, you, Timothy, hold the right mentors in high regard. You know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. So, Timothy, choose whom you're going to follow. That's what he's saying in the flow Choose. Do you choose the icons of the age? Do you choose the big mouths? Do you choose the gods of pleasure? How about choosing somebody who gets beaten up now and then? Someone who, whose teaching is reliable. You know all about my teaching. Follow someone who gives you good teaching. Follow someone whose way of life is is a model. Your purpose, both for this life and for the life to come. Your faith, patience, love, endurance. And moreover, this also means that you want to be that kind of person to model it to others too. Hold the right mentors in high regard. How often does Paul dare say, you want to know how to live? Watch me. How often do you say that to your congregation? Be imitators of me, even as I also am of Christ. You ought to be saying it. There is a lot of Christian truth and gospel passed on by being watched. So also in this context, that's what Paul is saying. Hold on to the right mentors. Number two, hold no illusions about the world, verses 12 and 13. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. This passage is not saying that every generation is worse than the preceding generation. That's not what it's meant. What it's saying is that in every generation, evil people get worse and worse. In other words, you come to a divide in human existence. You receive the grace of God, and you grow in grace. We call that sanctification. Or you reject the grace of God, and you get harsher and crueler and more stubborn and hateful. Old age does not necessarily bring godliness. It can just bring perversity. You become an expert in sinfulness. Hitler did not start off being Hitler. He was a cute little kid at one point. He didn't end up a cute little kid. Evil men and imposters will get worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived, don't you see? So don't be surprised. When you find wickedness, be horrified. Don't be surprised. If you're surprised, you're naive about wickedness. Al Mohler likes to say, for the Christian, optimism is naive. But pessimism is atheistic. Optimism is naive because we really do believe in the doctrine of sin. We know our own hearts for a start. Hold few illusions about the world. But at the same time, remember that God is God. God is God. So pessimism is atheistic. Number three, 
hold on to the Bible. That's our passage. That's the material principle. We'll come back to that passage in a moment. And finally, hold out the Bible to others. Chapter 4, verse 1 to 5. Once he's established what the Bible is, then he says, chapter 4, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of the appearing and and his kingdom, I give you this charge, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage, and so forth. Do you see? So you not only hold on to the Bible, you hold out the Bible to others. We'll come to that in due course. And then finally, the passage ends with the Christian's eschatological hope. In chapter 4, verses 6 to 8, you end up with the opposite of the eschatological curse that falls upon the world at the beginning of chapter 3. Now we read, I am already being poured out like a drink offering. The time for my departure is near. I may die before Christ comes back, but I'm heading for glory. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And my dear Timothy, I'm not just thinking in an isolated, isolationist, individualistic way, as if I get blessing, whatever you guys gets up to you. No, 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 no. Not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. There's the eschatological hope that transforms everything. You either come under the eschatological curse or you live under the eschatological hope. And suddenly the entire frame of reference changes. And at the center of all of it is how Christians handle their Bibles. That's the formal principle. So although this is only one passage that treats the Bible, it is an important one. Our passage, hold on to the Bible, is part of the Christian's response to an evil world. These passages usefully underscore the formal principle in Paul. Now, these verses, 14 to 17 of chapter 3, may usefully be outlined as follows. Five steps. Number one, the Christian's encompassing submission to Scripture. The Christian's encompassing submission to Scripture. Verse 14, but as for you, That is, over against the world under which you should suffer no delusions, no illusions about how evil it is, over against the world. But you, by contrast, you continue in what you have have learned and have become convinced of. In other words, return to Scripture again and again. It's not a question of coming to the Bible just once and hearing the gospel and you've got saved. Well, thank God. But you've returned to the Bible again and again and again. You continue in that which you have learned and received and heard. And you discover as you get older that you you, you bring new sets of questions to the Bible. How do I bring up my children? How do I live in such a way that holiness is attractive? What do I do for retirement? Is there a theology of retirement in Scripture? What do I do with my time? How do I offer it to God? What does sexual purity look like in an age of porn? How do I understand the current Christological debates on the internet? Yeah, well, do you want me to give you a lecture on Christology? Or were you going to go back to the Bible and see if you can sort some of this out for yourself? That's what it's there for. Again and again and again, the Christian's encompassing submission to Scripture is at the heart of everything. 
Second, the Christian's heritage in the Scripture, 14b and 15. You know these things, and you know those from whom you learn them. How from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are wise to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Of course, at the beginning of chapter 1, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul writes, verse 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. Apparently his dad played no part in it. His dad was a Gentile. Perhaps, um, perhaps he found no saving faith at this juncture. Who knows? But he still had this godly heritage. Somebody sang Sunday school songs to him. Somebody taught him the biblical stories. What a spectacular heritage. Not only simple gospel songs, but songs that told narratives. Hushed was the evening hymn, the temple courts were dark. The lamp was burning dim before the sacred ark. And I could give you the whole story of Samuel in song and Daniel and Joseph. It's all part of my heritage. I was brought up, I was, I was brainwashed with it. Thank God. Did you know? It's part of the heritage of having a mind that is devoted to Scripture. It, it, it wasn't even painful. It was fun. We played Bible games on Sunday afternoon. Do you have any idea how many names begin with Yah? <laughs> I'm not saying that any of that made me holy. What it did make me do was aware of the biblical content. I didn't have to learn it from scratch. I feel so sorry for people who become Christians at the age of 25 and have never cracked a Bible since la- since, from before last week. Now, not everyone has this heritage, of course. I know that doesn't make me any better. But if we do have this heritage, we must not only cherish it, but pass it on. For we live in an age of rising biblical illiteracy, both outside the church and inside the church. The people I evangelize in university missions nowadays don't know the Bible has two testaments. They've never heard of Abraham. It shows up in a thousand different ways. It depends a bit in, in, in your milieu, I suppose. It's not quite as lost in the deep south, although you're catching up fast. But, but, but in certain sectors of society, the, the, the culture is spectacularly ignorant. Every once in a while, somebody wants me to go and do something on TV to be the token evangelical for something or other. I don't do it very often, but every once in a while, I, I, I succumb. And some years back, I was asked to do something for the Discovery Channel. I had to fly off to some city or other where we were going to be doing something on the historical Jesus and I was going to be debating somebody and so on. I spent hours over three days doing this or that or the other and it all cut down to about 10 seconds in the final product. You know how it goes. But when I got there, a limo met me at the gate at the the, the airport. Now, I I don't ride in limos very often, but I was in a limo. And I thought I'd better be a good Christian here. So if I'm going to be a good Christian, I've got to engage the driver, you know, do my bit for evangelism. How are things going with you? Oh, not very well. 
You want to talk about it? Well, my 32-year-old daughter died last week. She's the only child I had. Oh, I'm so sorry. You want to tell me how it happened? Well, she was driving in Kansas on icy roads, and she went off the road. The car flipped, broke her neck. He said she only got married two years ago. She was happy in her own place, enjoying life, and now she's gone. I said, I can't tell you how sorry I am. I, I, I said, would you, would you look at it a little differently if you believed with your whole heart that there's life after death? Here's Don Carson trying to figure out a way of getting going in this conversation. And he replies, oh, I know just what you mean. I think she'd like to come back as a butterfly. Zing, right by each other. No connection anywhere. We weren't even on the same planet. And that, 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 that's the way conversations go these days. Don't you find that when you're trying to do evangelism? You're not talking the same language. The few religious vocabulary words that this culture has, spirit, God, faith, a few others, truth, whatever, in every case they mean something different from what I mean. And the biblical categories that are the very foundation for understanding anything about the Bible, covenant, priesthood, sacrifice, temple, righteousness, consummation, and so on, those categories don't resonate at all in the contemporary culture. We're just passing each other like ships in the night. So I got to the studio, and I made a point over the next three days of trying to talk to everybody on this 12-person crew about the gospel. I tried to get up to her, sidle up to the assistant cameraman, cameraman number two, had a wee chat. I didn't find one who knew the Bible had two testaments. Well, that's not quite true. I found one. She was the one who was supposed to interview me. She told me that she'd been studying the Bible for six weeks now. She thought she had a pretty good handle on it. <laughs> Boy, was I impressed. And, and you realize that there is something here about maintaining a Christian culture of biblical knowledge that we are responsible for for the next generation. Yeah. It's scary to read Christian Smith and his now well-known moral theistic deism, which is as rife in the local church as it is in the broader culture. Number three. The Christian's grasp of the pattern of Scripture, 15b. You have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It's not an abracadabra thing. There's a whole wisdom that's bound up with what the Bible is really about. I've chosen the word pattern because it's already used by Paul in the first chapter. Chapter 1, verse 13. What you heard from me keep as the pattern of sound doctrine. The pattern of it. You see, after all, before Paul became a Christian, he, he believed that the Bible was the word of God. But he didn't have the right pattern. He uses the same word, if you recall, in Romans chapter 6, verse 17. But thanks be to God that, though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. In other words, the Bible a day of, with a verse a day to keep the devil away is not enough. Any pagan can do that. 
What you need is the pattern to understand enough about how the Bible is put together that you see what the gospel consists in. Do you, do, do you see? So, the Christian's grasp of the pattern of salvation as opposed to things that throw around the adjective biblical as if it's a magical word. You've seen many of these books that are advertised, four views on, three views on, two views on, and sometimes those books are rather helpful. They expose you to other points of view and other ways of interpreting Scripture and stop us from being just too narrow and so on. On the other hand, they can be a bit deceptive. Baptism. Two views. Now, often there are three views or four views because not every paedo-baptist argues the same way. Not every Baptist argues the same way. But, but, but the advertisers always say, this is one biblical view and this is another biblical view. And this is a third biblical view. Biblical view? I want to choke. Is the Bible so confused? Or is it views that are grounded in interpretations of the Bible that can't all be right? Because they're mutually contradictory. Zondervan has recently come out with a book on homosexual covenant marriage. One view is affirming, and the other view is non-affirming. And both are biblical views. You see, this isn't the pattern of sound teaching. It's proof texting to prove an agenda item. Do you see? And that will damn you. At the end of the day, to have an authoritative scripture that is used either as a magic proof text or a source text for abracadabras, but actually misunderstands the Bible in some fundamental ways, as it is, for example, in Mormonism, or as it is in in Jehovah's Witness theology, is, is, is a long way away from the gospel itself. And then finally, or number four, the, the, the God-givenness of Scripture, the God-givenness of Scripture, chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is God-breathed, sometimes rendered all Scripture is inspired. God-breathed is a bit pedantic, but it's got it about right. It's not saying that the Scripture writers were God-breathed and inspired, though in some sense that was certainly true. But the text itself, the Scripture, the, what is written is God-breathed. That is, however much Paul's idiom is not the same as John's idiom, and John uses vocabulary a bit different from Matthew's vocabulary and all the rest, nevertheless, it is so superintended by God that what comes down, every single solitary last word, is finally God-breathed. And countless biblical texts are built on either that assumption or that predication. So we saw in the seminar earlier today, that when a king becomes king in Israel, according to Deuteronomy chapter 17, the first thing that he's supposed to do is write out longhand the words of this law. Longhand. Without downloading it from the cloud to his hard drive, without it passing through his brain, he's to write it out longhand. So clearly, in printed Hebrew script, that that becomes his reading copy All the days of his life. Read it for yourself in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 and following. All the days of his life. So that he learns not to go to the left or to the right. So that he doesn't think too highly of himself. So so that he will revere the words of the Lord his God and revere the Lord himself. We want Bible reading that reveres the Lord God. After all, doesn't God say through the prophet Isaiah, To these will I look, they who are humble and of a contrite spirit and who tremble at my word. 
And the function of Scripture in the fifth place, the function of all of Scripture, oh, look at it. It's useful for teaching. That comes first. Small wonder that earlier on in chapter 10, uh, ch- chapter uh, 3, verse 10, um, Paul's first thing to Timothy is, you, however, know all about my teaching. He comes back to the pattern of sound teaching. How do we know what is right apart from the word of God? So the formal principle establishes the material principle. The authoritative word gives us the substance of what we are to believe. And because of this usefulness for teaching, where teaching goes astray, we need rebuking. Whether it goes astray because we get our thinking wrong or because our conduct is twisted or hypocritical or half-baked or selfish, even when we know what is right, we do what is wrong, there's a place for rebuking and correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The gospel, in other words, not only saves us, makes us in right standing before God, but so transforms us by the Spirit operating through the Word that we become rich in good works. Yes, yes, by grace you're saved through faith. It is the gift of God, not of your, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in him to do works that he has ordained before the beginning of time that we should walk in them. Never pit teaching against activism. Just make sure they fit into the pattern of sound teaching aright so that you see that the conduct is the fruit of the gospel and not its ground. So now again, remind yourself of where the argument runs from here. That's the word of God. Hold on to it in this wicked generation and then hold out the Bible to others, chapter 4, verses 1 to 5 and end with the Christian's eschatological hope, verses 6 to 8. So much for the formal principle. We're halfway done. We come now to the material principle, and I invite you to turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Again, we could have looked at a lot of passages. Let's try this one. 1 Corinthians 15, and I'll read the initial 11 verses. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, he appeared to me also 
as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet, not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. So reads the word of God. Now let me begin by the word gospel itself. What does gospel mean? In the last few years, I've been, duct- been conducting some experiments asking people what they mean by the word gospel, what they understand when they hear the word gospel. We had a little bit of fun with that in our seminar. Part of the problem is that English, unlike most languages, has roots coming into the language from other Sources. There's the Anglo-Saxon set of words, and then there's the Indo-European set of words coming to us through uh, Greek and Latin and so on. And so sometimes these diverse roots produce synonyms that mean roughly the same thing, but yet the accidents of history mean that they mean slightly different things too. An easy example is um, the subject is deep. The subject is profound. The well is deep. The well is profound. You realize that words with two different roots that can be exact synonyms in one context don't work in another context. So, French has one word for the gospel, évangile. We have two, gospel and evangel. Some of you will know that I'm the president of the Gospel Coalition. There are reasons why we didn't call it the Evangelical Coalition. One of the reasons is that our vice president, Tim Keller, lives in New York City. And in New York City, evangelical means roughly Protestant jihadist. Which is not quite the label that I wanted to adopt, do you know? In some cultures, evangelical means something like sectarian who goes from door to door. That's what it means in Colombia, for example. You're either a Catholic, a Christian, or you're a sectarian, an evangelical, like Jehovah's Witnesses and other evangelicals that go door-to-door. It's got no theological content. It just means you're a pain in the rear end going door-to-door with religious motives. Do you, do, do you see? That's what evangelical means. And, and so you realize that the term can mean a lot of different things in a lot of different contexts, and you have to spend some time trying to, trying to work out what it should mean. There's no point getting rid of it Because any other word that we decide to use is going to get corrupted equally quickly. And at least the word evangel or gospel has the advantage that it's a biblical word. So we can go back to the formal principle to try to shape our understanding of the material principle. We want to understand how it's used by the biblical writers. The first thing to observe about it is the word itself, euangelion. What it means is... a an announcement, a news, a great news or good news. That, that, that's what it is. And that's why the first thing that you do with good news is announce it. You, you proclaim it. That's why there's so much emphasis in the New Testament on preaching. 
Preaching does not necessarily mean it's got to be behind a desk at 11 o'clock or else it's not preaching. It means you're proclaiming it. You're, you're announcing it. You're, you're, you're circulating it quickly. You see, because it's good news. That's what you do with good news. Hey, look, I've got engaged. Isn't that good news? You don't need a pulpit to say that. But, but it's irrepressible once it's good news for you and you want to circulate it. Do you see? So if this is good news from God, then, then what you do with it in the first place is not... Dig wells in the Sahel. That's not the gospel. You announce it. You proclaim it. You teach it. You talk about it. You preach it. Do you see? Now, in all fairness, this gospel so works to transform our lives that you may end up digging wells in the Sahel. Fair enough. We'll we'll come to that in due course. But what you must see is that the first thing about this gospel is that it is news. And what you do with news is announce it. That's what you do with it. That's why so much of evangelism in the New Testament is bound up with bearing witness to Jesus or proclaiming the news or preaching the gospel from place to place. Do you see? You're announcing the good news. So the question becomes, what is this news? That's the material principle. What is the gospel? Now, you could go to a lot of passages to begin to answer that question. But we'll take this one. Moving rather quickly, the gospel is... Number one, Christological. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached you. So it's a reminder. Paul's already talked about it. Which you received, by which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on as a first importance. Here's the heart of the issue. And then in Greek, what I passed on as the first importance, colon, Christ. This gospel is Christological. In other words, the gospel is not raw, reductionistic theism. The devil believes in God. That doesn't make him a Christian. No, there's a place for getting sorted out on the matter of the doctrine of God, no doubt. But here the focus is on Christ. The gospel is good news about Christ, not just his existence, his origin, his incarnation, but as Paul puts it a little earlier when he writes to the Corinthians in the opening chapters of this book, he says, I determined when I was among you to know nothing save Christ and Christ crucified. So what does he say? Matters of first importance that Christ died. So he's back to what is of fundamental importance in any understanding of the gospel. Christ died for our sins, which brings us to the second point. This gospel is theological. By this, I mean two or three things. I mean, this whole plan of redemption in the Bible, in passage after passage, is God's plan. It's not as if God is in heaven, stinking angry with us, and Christ comes along and rescues us, God's rather sorry about that, but, you know, uh, what are you going to do? His son died, so I guess I'll have to turn aside. No, no, no. This is God's plan. God so loved the world that he sent his son. The Father and the Son and the Spirit are one in this plan. This plan is deeply, deeply, deeply theological. It is God-originated, God-imagined, God-thought-through, God-planned, God from the beginning of the universe, God to the end of time and beyond to a recreated universe. This is God's plan. Not only so. But God raised Jesus from the dead, as we'll see a little farther on in the chapter. Not only so, but God accepts Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. 
So here you have God and Jesus at one. Jesus bears this load of guilt and penalty. But, but at the same time, Jesus knows that his father has this as the plan. And he accepts this, this sacrifice. So much so that he raises Jesus from the dead and seats him at his right hand. Not only the ascension, but the session in glory to vindicate Jesus and this sacrificial plan. All God's doing. This is a theological gospel. It's Christological, it's theological, it's historical. That is, it's not just the case, not Paul's point here, but it's not just the case that the Word became flesh in space-time history, which we celebrate at Christmas, but that this resurrection, which is being attested here, and this death happens in history. We're not saved by ideas about Christ. We're not saved by ideas about Jesus' death. We're saved by Jesus' death which happened in space-time history. Did you notice this? That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, which reminds you again of all the long list of witnesses, which he's about to adumbrate. He doesn't mention all of them, but he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, after that to more than 500, brothers and sisters, some have fallen asleep, then he appeared to James, all the apostles, and so on. Did you see? Witnesses to what took place in space-time history. In other words, the revelation of God is presented in the Bible as not mere sentences, propositions, like some philosophical structure or something like this. Crucial parts of the revelation of God take place in space-time history. And the access to what takes place in space-time history, we get through witnesses. Either witnesses that were actually there and wrote stuff down and attested it, or witnesses who were there told it to others who wrote it down and attested it. That's why in the book of Acts, where the resurrection of Jesus is mentioned again and again and again, you find the word witness cropping up again and again. We cannot help but bear witness to the things we have seen and heard. Do you see? Do you realize how unique Christianity is in this regard? If you could prove, I have no idea how, but if you could prove that Gautama the Buddha never lived, would you destroy Buddhism? Nah. There's nothing in Buddhism that depends on the existence of Gautama. If you could prove that the great Hindu god Krishna never lived, would you destroy Hinduism? Nah. They got millions of gods. Go down the street to a Shiva temple instead. But supposing Jesus never existed, supposing he never rose from the dead, in space-time history, attested by witnesses, then we're damned. That's why it's all the more important in our day and generation where the contemporary culture is playing games with the word history that we understand what's going on. Today, many people will say that Jesus' resurrection was a real event, but it was not historical. For people with straightforward minds, you scratch your head and say, what does that mean? It's not historical and it's not a real event. But historical has increasingly come to mean in our culture that 
which is caused by naturalistic causes. To be an historical event, it must not only take place in the space-time continuum, it must be caused by events in the space-time continuum. That is to say, by the forces of nature, matter, energy, space, and time, nothing more. If it's caused by something supernatural from the outside, then it's not an historical event. It might be an event, but it's not an historical event. So people say, so that means Jesus' resurrection, whatever it was that took place, was not an historical event. It was just an event. But for most of us, when we hear, oh, it's not really an historical event, what that means to us is it didn't happen. Try explaining in your witnesses, yes, Jesus rose from the dead. Well, not, not in history, of course, but, but it was a real event. He really did rise from the dead. It, it wasn't even, but of course, it didn't happen in history. And see if they'll buy into that one, if that makes evangelizing a little easier. This kind of debate has been going on for about three quarters of a century. When Karl Barth came to New York City in 1959, Carl Henry was at that point editor of Christianity Today. And in the Q&A time, Carl asked Carl, Carl Henry with a C, asked Carl Bart with a K, in your understanding, was the resurrection of Jesus Christ the kind of event that could have been covered by contemporary photographers? If it had taken place today, should a photographer have shown up? Would he have caught anything on film? And Carl Henry had identified himself when he got up to ask the question, I'm editor of Christianity Today. Carl Barth heard the question and snapped back, Did you say Christianity Today or Christianity Yesterday? Carl Henry replied, Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. You see, the truth of the matter is that God so rules over everything every mote of dust dancing in a sunbeam, every bird that falls from the air, every drop of rain. But he normally does so in regular ways. So science is possible. But he may do so spectacularly with power from the outside. That happens in regeneration. That's why Christian conversion can never be adequately understood in merely sociological functions. He changed his mind. No, 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 no. Biblical conversion requires the miraculous work of God in the life. And likewise, the resurrection of Jesus Christ did not just happen because the, the atoms bounced the right way. Thank God. No, this happened because of the work of God spectacularly operating in an abnormal way to bring Jesus to life in the space-time continuum so that he could eat and touch. And his wounds were there, the same wounds that were on the body that went into the grave. And and. And, and, and he could appear and disappear in a, in a closed room. He had new capacities with his body, but yet it was connected to the old body. The tomb was empty. Space-time history. This gospel is Christological. It's theological. It's historical. It's biblical. Repeatedly we're told this happened according to Scripture. So once again we move from the formal principle to the material principle. It happens in line with Scripture. Not only so, but it's apostolic. Yes, Christ appeared to many, many people 
of more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at one time up in Galilee, presumably, some of whom are still living. But he also appeared to Peter, Cephas, and he appeared to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me as to one abnormally born, for I am the least of the apostles. There is a recognition that the apostles have a peculiarly mediating role between Jesus and the rest of the church. They have a peculiar witness role, taking on the authority of Christ to bear witness as to the significance of these events to the rest of the church. But remember what Paul says elsewhere in Galatians chapter 1. He says in Galatians chapter 1, though we, we apostles, or even an angel from heaven, if we, we apostles, or an angel from heaven preached any other gospel than the gospel we preach to you, let him be anathema. Let him be damned. In other words, the authority of the apostles is not so intrinsic that they can say whatever they jolly well want to say, and it's authoritative just because they're apostolic. Rather, when we speak of the apostolic church, we do not mean the church that has come down allegedly through a series of bishops designated by the first apostles in an unending organic structure. No, when we speak of the apostolic gospel, we mean the gospel maintained and defended and articulated and preached by the first apostles. That's what we mean. It's an apostolic gospel. Moreover, this gospel is personal. It has to be received personally. This gospel that you receive, verse 15, on which you have taken your stand, verse 1 rather, by this gospel, you are saved. It's a salvific gospel. It's not only personal, it's salvific. Not only so, but also it's a preached gospel. I preach this gospel to you, verse 1. Verse 2, the word that I preach to you again and again. In other words, this gospel is heralded good news. You may have heard the expression often assigned to Francis of Assisi. Preach the gospel. If necessary, use words. Now, there's no evidence that Francis of Assisi ever said that. But I have to tell you that if he did, he was stupid. <laughs> because what you do with news is announce it. It's like saying to a newscaster at 10 o'clock news, this evening I want you to announce the news. If necessary, use words. What you do with news is announce it. Now, do not misunderstand the slogan wrongly assigned to Assisi, has a certain point to it. If necessary, use words. It's a way of trying to say rather cleverly that our lives often speak louder than our words do. And that's true. There are many, many contexts in which the first thing you must do in, in your evangelism is show kindness and receptivity and a listening ear and handing out clean water and, and bringing in the troops for security after a tsunami and bringing in tents and all, all the rest. I'm, I'm not denying any of that. In fact, I insist upon it. By their fruit you shall know them. Yet at the same time, that's not the gospel. The gospel is what God has done in Christ Jesus, supremely in the cross, to reconcile sinful men and women to himself, transformed by the power of the Spirit, the down payment of the promised inheritance, until the consummation, when his whole body, the church, is transformed perfectly in resurrection existence in the new heaven and the new earth. That's the gospel. Do you see? Let me conclude by avoiding certain common mistakes 
in our understanding of what the gospel is. Amongst the common mistakes made today in misdefining the material principle are these. Number one, pitting one canonical gospel against another canonical gospel. I've heard people say, I really do like John's gospel. Not so keen on Mark. Or conversely, I like Matthew with all of its long sermons. But Mark is a bit terse and clumsy. But you know, in the first century, it was not the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Luke. Nobody thought that way. It's the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Mark, the gospel according to Luke, and so on. So nobody was using the word gospel in the first century to refer to the genre that we now call the first four gospels. Did you see? The gospel was itself the good news. So it was understood there was one gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And when Paul eventually finds himself in the position where he's got to rebuke Peter in Galatians chapter 2, he relates the story after he makes it clear in the preceding verses that Paul and Peter shared one conviction about what the gospel really was. We shook hands on it. We agreed. We not only agreed as to what the gospel really is, we even agreed as to what we ought to do for the sake of the poor. We were in agreement. Paul's criticism of Peter is not that he's got another gospel, but that he's acting like a hypocrite. In other words, in the first century, there is one gospel. One gospel. And where someone introduces something other, another gospel, then Paul says in Galatians 1, it's really no gospel at all. It's not good news at all. It's bad news. It's not that there was a legitimate range of Christian gospels. One gospel by Matthew and one gospel by Luke and one gospel by Paul. And these, these, these gospels were part of the legitimate range. No, there was a gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. According to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Avoid pitting the gospels against each other. In particular, number two, avoid pitting the synoptic gospels against Paul. This one has become quite popular in recent years sometimes called the kingdom gospel or the synoptic gospel gospel or something like that. So Paul has this gospel where you're saved by grace through faith and he's not interested in kingdom and things like that. And then over here you have the gospel of, of Jesus, the Jesus gospel, and it talks about ethics in the Sermon on the Mount. And much, much do I prefer the gospel of, the, of Jesus than the gospel of Paul. So you pit the two of them against each other. Well, this is bizarre. It's bizarre in the first place because Paul himself speaks of the kingdom of God 13 times. Sometimes in really trenchant passages like 1 Corinthians chapter, nine, uh, chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, which, which insists, this passage does, that, that, that if people continue in their sinful practices, that is, ethical judgments, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, the overlaps in theology between Paul and Jesus are much, much, much stronger than people consider. Moreover, what takes place in the canonical Gospels takes place, according to the Gospel writers themselves, as at a time when the disciples, the apostles, were still wrestling with what Jesus meant, unsure what was going on. Do you you remember how Peter confesses that, that Jesus really is the Messiah in Matthew chapter 16? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
And Jesus himself says that, that he got that from Revelation. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Yet you still have to pause and say, yet it has to be said that what Peter meant by you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, is less than what you and I mean. Because we can't speak of Christ as the Son of the living God, the Messiah, without thinking of him as the one who was crucified and who died and was buried and rose again the third day and is at the Father's right hand. Peter had no category for that yet. No category at all. So that when Jesus goes on to talk about the cross, Peter jumps in and says, Never, Lord, that'll never happen to you. Messiahs win. They don't die. Prompting Jesus to say, Get behind me, Satan. You don't understand the things of God. So what Peter said about Jesus was right, but it was inadequate. During Jesus' ministry, until the cross and the resurrection, the apostles themselves were pretty slow learners, pretty thick. And even when Jesus was in the tomb, the apostles were not up there in the upper room saying, yes, I can really wait till Sunday. They were scurrying around, scared sick for fear of the Jews, afraid they were going to be next. So because the Gospels are contemporaneous in their description with the events when the disciples knew so little, understood so little, it's not surprising that the categories are in some respects a little more obscure or a little more misunderstood. Whereas Paul writes, after the resurrection, after the ascension, after the descent of the Spirit, the promised interpreter, after some years had gone by so that you could see the fruit of it in the church, Paul is converted. And all this vast biblical knowledge that he had as a rabbi goes clink, clink. And he sees, oh, yes, now it all makes sense. So that when he writes, he writes from a perspective of, of, of increased knowledge and increased perspective that was simply not available to the apostle Peter in Matthew chapter 16. Do you see? So far from viewing Peter as uh, Paul from from viewing Paul as sort of removed from Jesus, he has the advantage in God's own providential timing of things to seeing things in a richer, fuller, thicker perspective, like Peter when he writes his epistles long after Matthew 16. Last thing to avoid, and then I'm done. Avoid focusing on Jesus' teaching over against the cross. There are recent books that have argued that sort of thing very vociferously. They say something like this. In this book, I'm going to ignore the passion narrative. I'm just going to focus on the teaching of Jesus. So we won't say anything about the cross in this book. We're going to study the teaching of Jesus as found in, let's say, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That is so wrong-headed, it gives me ulcers just thinking of the ways that I'd like to respond to it. Because so many of the things Jesus teaches are on the way to the cross. Some of them are cleverly, wisely, suggestively, elusively pointing to the cross. And in other cases, the very structure of the narrative is, 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 is listening to what Jesus says in this parable or that parable after the text is already informed that Jesus said this on his way to Jerusalem, resolved to go to Jerusalem, knowing in advance what takes place in Jerusalem. And then he gives the parable, which means that it's morally wrong, it's ethically wrong, it's pedagogically wrong, it's doctrinally wrong to start teaching about what Jesus says in that context without bearing in mind that this is said on the way to the cross and has to be interpreted in the light of the gospel of the cross that sheds light back 
on Jesus' words and teaching. In other words, there's far more unanimity, far more cohesion, far more coherence in the one gospel of Jesus Christ with all of its parables and its demands and its ethics and all the rest, but focused above all on the good news of what God has done in Christ Jesus to transform men and women to himself by the work of the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, the session to God's right hand, according to the perfect plan of God laid down from all eternity. Some of you will know the name Mark Dever, a dear brother. He takes in six students at a time, puts them through what he calls ecclesiological boot camp. And one of the first assignments that he's given them in recent years is to write in one word what they understand by gospel. One word. And then to write what they understand by gospel in one phrase. Then to write what they understand by gospel in one sentence. Then to write what they understand by gospel in one paragraph. Then to write what they understand by gospel in one 10-page unit. Now, mercifully, he doesn't go on to demand a book. The one of his students did write one. So you can imagine for one word, people will say, what's the gospel? Jesus. Well, you can't disagree with that. Grace. Can't disagree with that either. Or the more theologically inclined may say justification or atonement. You can't disagree with either of those either. But let's be quite frank. They're not particularly insightful or discriminating. If you say Jesus, you can't be wrong. But you have to admit that there are a lot of people who use the name of Jesus in ways that are a long way removed from how Jesus appears in the Bible. So, so you begin to flesh it out, and you begin to flesh it out, and you begin to flesh it out. And you have to remember that some people, when they become Christians, become Christians on the basis of very slim material. But they're Christians. They're Christians. But if you're a Christian and you've been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ, you don't want to remain on the thin edge of your understanding of gospel, the same thin edge that you had when you first became a Christian. Do you? Somebody says of John's gospel that it's like a pool in which a child may wade and an elephant may swim. That's true of the gospel. The gospel is like a pool in which a child may wade. A child may get converted. I've seen kids at the age of three or four genuinely come to saving faith. But it's so rich and it's so thick and it's so entwined with the attributes of God and the promises of God, and the work of Christ, and how you put your whole Bible together. It's entwined with how we live and how we think, where we're going, the new heaven and the new earth, the problem of sin at the beginning from Genesis 3, the Bible's history. It's entwined with all of these things, on and on and on, so that if you're a Christian, you don't want to stay at the, sh at the shallow end of the pool. You want the gospel to be your material principle of what you proclaim under the authority of the formal principle to the glory of God. Thank you for listening to this episode of the EFCA Theology Podcast. You can find more episodes by searching EFCA Theology Podcast in any podcast app or on the web at efca.org slash podcast.